I'll fix None. it in post. Right. Let's go. Welcome to Luke's Talk Mine. My name is Luke, and I work for a big wine company. And my name is Luke, and I work for a small wine company. And today we're going to talk about, uh, well, we went out for dinner on, on the weekend, lunch. And we'll, um, we'll chat about what we learned while at lunch. There were some cracking bottles of wine and some very interesting um, little topics came out of that. And mm. uh, we might jump into a, a, a listener question while we're there, while we're here. Uh, but what, what's been happening in your wine world this week, pal, Luke Campbell? Well, thank you very, very, very much. And hello to the listening audience. Luke, something got up my goat this weekend. It was on the back of our little bit of lunch, actually. And we, we ventured out in a post-pandemic world. And yeah. we, began, we began the search for a BYO restaurant. And they're limited. They're null and void. And for those listening overseas or even interstate in some cases, they wouldn't be familiar with a BYO, but it's something Melbourne and Sydney siders would be very, very used to. But in a post-pandemic world, they are few and far between. I like bringing my own wine. What about you, Luke Morris? Oh, yeah, I love bringing my own wine, mainly when the restaurant uh, doesn't really cater to too much on the wine list. If, if, if they've got a few options and they're just a small restaurant, let them, let them be. Um, but if they're mainly about the food and they've not uh, got too much to offer in the, in the wine world, yeah, let, let us bring our own. But what, what happened after the lunch or was this before the lunch? Well, before the lunch, when we were looking about talking about particular restaurants, about those that are BYO, so, so for those listening, the time-honoured tradition of BYO, there's two ways it can go. You can be charged a per-bottle corkage or you can be charged a per-head corkage. And that, you know, oh, yeah. that's, all, that's, all, that's all well and good because the, the, the restaurant either has to serve it or they have to maintain the glassware or pay the sommelier or, or decant it. or There's a fair bit of pomp and ceremony that goes with serving wine to you. So if you're bringing a wine, such goes with it a little bit of etiquette. If I'm, if I'm taking a wine to a restaurant, I make sure it's not on the, rest, the restaurant's wine list. Yep. I make sure it's probably, you know, a, a little bit of, might be a little bit rare, it might be a little bit aged, or it might be something that the restaurateur really likes because that's a double bonus. Yeah. The lack, the lack of BOEOs post this pandemic was frightening. So it's something that Melbourne and, and Sydney siders, diners, would be quite used to, Luke Morris. But you and I had the conversation. We had to put together a list and tick them off, what were available, what wasn't available. And it just got in my goat a bit. I thought, God, these, these restaurateurs, they are missing out on diners that want to enjoy their food with the wines from their cellars. That's funny because I had the reverse effect because I found, I realised there was a lot more BYO restaurants than I knew existed. Um, there's in, in Melbourne, there was, what did we find? There was oh, the Supper Inn, I forgot they existed. There's Jim's Creek, Greek Tavern, which I've never been to before. There was multiple other Thai Restaurants that were recommended to me. I've been been told about a couple of uh, pizzerias that that exist around town. I'm I'm not too surprised in a post-pandemic world that people are reducing the number of BYO options available because why not? Why why why, well, why not? Well, obviously, bloody restaurants and their markups for their wines. No, just because why <laughs> restaurants just just because restaurants don't generally make a lot of money on the BYO option. 
and would rather you purchase from their list. And that's understandable, particularly sure. in modern times. I mean, I think sure. it's great that we even have BIO, to be honest with you. I'm just grateful that any restaurant lessers bring your own plonk. Sure, I, I agree with that. But the restaurants are still, they're, they're still in the hospitality industry. They're not in the hostility industry. Did you experience some hostility when you went to Because you had no. to pay the bill. We, we were chipped in cash. It wasn't you on your own. But did, 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 they, did they look at you as scum? Like, can we bring in your own cork bottle openers and bring in your own? And just, we just sat around. We even demanded one extra pair of glassware. <laughs> no, they didn't look down their nose at me, Luke, nor did they oh, consider me scum. But oh, in, in, in general... And I, going out to lunch with you was a extremely fun experience, as it always is. I wasn't wasn't saying it just this experience in general. Just overall, I, I didn't experience any hostility on this occasion. Yeah. But I, I think in a hospitality. So, and, and I'm talking, ladies and gentlemen, and, and listening audience. I'm talking as a previous restaurant owner here. So, so I, I can fully. And we did allow BYO for what it's worth, but. I understand there's not a money-making avenue, uh, but there's great margin in, in food if it's done right. And I think you want the diner to have the best experience possible. And if that includes bringing their own wine, well, bang, charge a corkage and be done with it. Didn't we, we found that there's a few options that were closed to us, either because they were closed, and that's part of the result of the pandemic, uh, reduced options to dining, but also... Uh, places that do offer BYO select the days. So it's a Monday night or Tuesday night or Wednesday night, not yep. uh, lunch on a Saturday, which is what we were doing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, true. And, and I guess, you know, I, I'm very okay with that. And I, I think that's probably the way of the future. Yep. Um, obviously, their, their non-peak times is when they allow BYO. Um, but no, I didn't e experience any hostility, but I was just shocked at... The, the lack of choice post-pandemic, but you make a very good point, Luke Morris, that in fact that because of the pandemic, margins have to go up and things have to be a little bit tighter. So maybe I should just go back into my box and get off, get down off my soapbox. I think people are just generally just trying to recover costs and we might see the world change over the next 12 months back into normality, normality as we're growing out of where we've been. We can only but, hope moving forward. But, Hi, this is Luke Morris from Luke's Talk Wine. I've written some books, so visit lukemorrisha.com.au. Go there, see the books, buy one, support the podcast. That's lukemorrisha.com.au, L-U-K-E-M-O-R-R-I-S-H-A.com.au. Have a great day. Talking about options, mm. options at the wine lunch was Bloody fantastic. There was a whole gamut of things that we had on offer uh, over lunch and there was a lot I I learned personally about the world of wines just by tasting it, which I think is an, an important thing for any listener or drinker or reviewer to to realise that uh, as much as we've been talking about it, we actually got together and tasted some stuff and there was a lot to be Absolutely. gleaned. Absolutely, and I think you, you can't, you never stop learning about wine. And the the way to do it, yeah, is, is get together with your your friends, your family, your colleagues, even your enemies, and, and taste some taste taste some wine flat out. And you're right, I you know I, I walked in 
and I, I was last of the table there. Um, yeah, that, I was, in. that was a real crying shame for you because we already cracked the champagne. <laughs> yes, you already <laughs> had cracked the champagne. Stepping and back, it was stepping back yeah. momentarily. You mentioned how you uh, can die a few em- enemies. You you refer to me as being part of a big business because uh, the company I work for does sell a lot of wine, but the other people, well, two, three other people at the table, ah. Uh, Giant business they're involved in. <laughs> well, it was it was a uh, a, a very uh, you know sought after crew, I guess. But you know we, we won't hold against them. There, no employ, employers. <laughs> no, no pun intended. <laughs> um, no. But I was last at the table, and I, I missed out on as big a glass of champagne as you actually. But the champagne in question was none other than Francois Egli's Egli Urier. Grand Cru Millezine from 2009. It was a vintage champagne, a grower champagne, and just exquisite. Do you, have you got some notes on the wine? What, um... Do you know what? My memory of the wine was, A, yeah. bloody enjoying it, uh, yeah. and also I was really happy that... Um, I missed out? No, yeah, I was really happy that you <laughs> missed out. I got an extra pour. Um, the... I was I was glad they brought brought along a bubbles because I, I was very deep in the mind of uh, oh, Luke Campbell says he start with a bubbles maybe I should bring a bubbles oh no nah, I'm not going to today but oh, hope somebody does and bang there was a champagne on the table couldn't be happier with that result yep I remember tasting it thinking great it's actually quite developed but it's actually giving me a lot of there's still body and fizz in it enjoying it and then I remember both you. The person who bought the bottle mainly, and I think somebody else was saying, "Oh, is it corked? Is it corked?" And it was such a moment for me, just thinking, "I'm not noticing any cork characters, but you, were, you guys were picking up on something. What was it?" Yeah, I, I didn't. I, I would have liked to have debate that a bit further. I, I didn't know it was definitely forward, and it was definitely. And I say forward, you know, it was all was very well developed. It was 2009 and it was disgorged in 2018. It was, you know, and you would have expected it to be really fine and still quite bright, but it was all this kind of toffee flavour and vegetal note and there was a real kind of elegance. It had lost that primary fruit and there was a little bit of, um, yeah, like this aldehyde kind of note, which sounds rather challenging for listeners, but... I could I could understand uh, eloquent more eloquent palates than me at the table talking about that potentially being a cork taint. Like as you well know, Luke Morris, you know there can be seventeen faults in a wine. Eleven of them can be matched to the cork. I I didn't quite see that uh, corky TCA kind of remnants. I just found it very very forward, but I still found the wine you know, very refined, very, very um, delicious to drink, you know. Like it, it's basically Pinot, right, and it's got 30 20 30% Chardonnay in it. So it's going to be fairly masculine. But, yeah, there was just none of that fruit which you would have expected from Francois Egli's wines. Stepping back a moment, we're going to – put. I just wrote down show topic for a future time, 17 faults in a wine. This is obviously – and I – 
I don't know what they are. <laughs> 17 of them? Gosh. Oh, I, can bore you to, I can bore you to tears with those. Oh, yes, please. That's going to be a future. <laughs> but, um, we can bore the audience with the faults in wine. Let's do that, mate, shall we? You know, it's, I'm, I'm all up for a sleep cask. I was, I was struggling <laughs> to get to sleep last night. Sober as a priest, couldn't sleep. There's the problem. Drink priests aren't sober. I was Jesuit educated. I'll give you the tip. Priests are not sober. Oh, I'll tell you what. <laughs> The blood of Christ is anything to go by. Neither was their leader. <laughs> but anyway, um, I want to mention on the that the, the Eglio. Yeah, Eglio, uh, yeah, yeah. Sparking. Look, okay. So you, you mentioned that it, it was a bit forward. It looked a bit developed. It was a 2009 vintage and it had been in barrel for what? Uh, disgorged for 36 months. So that was in barrel for, but not barrel, bottle. It would have been... Uh, it would, have, would it have some sort of barrel fermentation part of the process? I'm just thinking that to say that it's, as people have been saying, not just yourself, that there wasn't enough fruit in it, I'm still thinking of the fact that it's it's had a fair bit of treatment going through it with age. I'm surprised if it had a lot of fruit. I was actually thought that it had it was in a spot where I would have expected it to be after X number of years and then disgorged with three years in bottle well conversely vintage cha- vintage champagnes always released to be drunk right so it's re- when upon release so i disgorge 2018 that's when it's ready to be drunk so conversely it's been in a state of um it's, it's been in a standstill in that fermentation barrel since oh, since 09 and then in, in in the bottle and then they disgorge it you know in, in 18 so yeah, you know, I, I think you would still expect it to have a little bit of fruit. It may not be that, you know, intense kind of c- citrus, but you might, you know, like that that citrus had made way for these kind of toffee and biscuit and almost kind of um, honeyed characteristics. So, which you wouldn't expect for about another five or ten years luke so huh. you know you, you would still ex- you would still expect that as 09 to be fairly finessed fairly elegant um but think, it, it might have been stored be... on top of a fridge or something like you don't know oh. like you don't know where that wine was stored it could have been bought in a secondary market from auction you don't you, we don't know where the wine came from maybe it was developed it did that does make me remember that uh, back in the day wise old man who was importing all the billy cart someone into Australia, I was told that he would uh, have it stored in a warm part of the warehouse because he felt it was always arrived with a bit too much acid and just needed that slight bit of heat treatment to get into a nice drinking window. And yep. then it would release around into Australia, which you'd be surprised if anybody, too many people knew that that's what was happening, but that it was being done on purpose to help yeah. give it some development. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's one one. And we could talk more. Gosh, we, we're about to run out of time. I think we, we could talk through every single one in some sort of way. Next one I wanted to talk about, because I yeah. think it was the next one we, we tasted, was the Bass Phillip 2014 Givert's Traminer. Ooh, there's a wine not a lot of people would know about. I was a bit surprised that they even planted it. But also, the thing that hit me first and foremost was thinking, I don't think Givert's ages very well. And then we tasted it, sort of reinforced that theory, to be honest. <laughs> well, and it the tends to, it the tends to flatten agreed. out. 
it tends to flatten out and becomes a little bit it becomes a little bit chewy after time. But you know, the, the great wines of Alsace and North, northern Germany, the Gewurzes of those regions, yeah, I mean, they'd be short term aging, you know, five, six, seven, eight years, no problems. But it's generally early drinking, but it still had a lovely pale colour and you know, it's still that 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 lychee fruit, that standout kind of lychee candied note from Gewurztraminer. It was all still there. Um, yeah, the the palate wasn't as as vibrant and rich as as I was hoping for. And it was look, I was happy with the wine. I was still drinking every day, but it was just one of those things where it's just like ah, now I know what aged Gewurz is like because I've, I don't think I've ever bothered to sell one before. No. Would, would those wines, I mean, Bass Phillip, you know, normally they're around, you know, $40, $50. Would, would any idea, would, would those wines be expensive, Luke? I, I, I don't know the wine either. To be honest, I don't think I've ever come across one in my auctioning days. Um, mm. And I wouldn't expect it to be high up there just because it of the, doesn't it require the same intensity as the rest of Bass Phillip, of, uh, it's Peter Jones, isn't it? Philip Jones. Philip Jones, wines. yeah, yeah. Um, with, um, Pinot and Chardonnay requiring a lot more winemaking use than the Gewurztraminer. But at the same time, you put Bassfield on the label, there's at least, what, $10, $15 in that? Oh, $15, absolutely. Yeah. But sh- sh- surely the Gewurztraminer, because he, he, he's down in Gippsland, so he, well, he was until he sold it recently, but so, so he makes Chardonnay. He's basically a Burgundian producer. Yeah. He has a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc down there as well, but Gewurz Tremor, geez, surely that must have been a hobby wine for him or something like that. Yeah. Oh, maybe he was buying in that grape. I mean, it'd just be a, it's a complete, it's a bit of a left fieldy kind of thing to plant when you, yeah. as you pointed out. And maybe he just likes yeah. it and maybe he just was growing it for himself and he had enough to bottle for other people. Maybe. Very true. Very true. Yeah. That could be, you know, that could be that. Um, what else did we get that was worth discussing? Well, the big ticket items, let's jump to those. The re- let's, seven let's, years. Okay. Oh, the seven years was, was was a fun little great. What did you think of that? I haven't had too much um, the seven years, which is uh, the Domain FL Chenin Blanc from Loire well, Valley little region. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a small region of the Loire Valley devoted to Chenin Blanc, and it's it's always a different style. It's usually served in a Riesling um Riesling type bottle. Yours wasn't. Yours came out in a burgundy bottle. I actually quite enjoyed that because I haven't had a seven years um, in, in a long, long time. Uh, so yeah, it's um, it's 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 always a highly rated wine, but the the wines are mostly dry, and it's this powerful, almost Chardonnay esque style. Very Chardonnay esque. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The probably the best example of seven years that you ever you hear of is Nicholas Jolie, J O L Y. That's probably the most famous producer i guess but they're, they're highly regarded and you get this everything from that kind of guava and melon uh-huh. r- right through to kind of you know um almost like seared grapefruit but yeah they're lovely ones i, I enjoyed that actually um because yeah, oh, i mean that's seven years for yeah yeah quite a few people at the table really got into that which um that was the one i brought along and i was quite um I was a little bit worried that it was wasn't on par with some of the things like the Eglio and um, some of the other things on the table, but everyone really enjoyed it. I think the uniqueness to it and, and that um, chance to try something different, which we always encourage on the podcast, see something different, give it a go. Yes, absolutely. 
Uh, well played, I say. Uh, there was a Beaujolais, but what did you bring? So I, I also the... bought a Beaujolais. So from you one did. of the seven communes of Beaujolais, I, I bought a Fleury from That's Sierra right. Reeds Fleury. Um, yeah, I mean, the, lovely wine, but I'm unequivocally, I, I do love a Beaujolais. It's one of those wines you don't have to think about. You can sip, you can drink it cold, you can pair it with fish. Very, very versatile. You can drink it through a straw. They're very, very, very fun. But <laughs> this this Fleury in particular, so Fleury is a Beaujolais commune, and, and I think it holds, to me, Fleury holds a little bit more kind of, um, uh, what would you say, bridal integrity, integrity for Gamay? I, I just love it. It's a little bit more denser. It's a little bit more darker. The commune itself is super juicy, mouth-filling, yummy gamay. Like it's, it's, it's Pinot Noir's cousins. It's per- pretty. It's perfume. And the carbonic maceration, how they make it, just adds to this kind of frisky, fleshy, mouth-filling juiciness. Admittedly, we had it with a little bit of spicy venison and exo. It probably wasn't the greatest match. But, Do you um, know what? I was just thinking about how <laughs> I think I had my glass. I still had some of the crispy pork. Crispy, crispy mm. skin pork, and uh, gosh, it was good stuff. Yes, because there was also a, um, I think it was Morgan was there as well, and yes. I very nearly bought a Beaujolais as well. Beaujolais, what a great wine! What a great wine! Someone told me that there's much more being brought into Australia than before. It was I, I know? I, I think we can get away with saying Lloydy was there, and uh, I remember he what was, we can't use saying, names. Yeah, Lloydy using not, names. Lloydy's a nickname-ish. Yes, yes. People yeah, would know Lloydy, yeah. Lloydy. Um, yeah. He said that his store, they've, they've, uh, they've got racks full of Beaujolais where they used to not. And I assume yep. that's demand, not just from the from the people buying wine, but also those, uh, from people selling wine, but also those buying it. Have, yep. have you seen an upswell in Beaujolais in your world? Yes, and I've also seen an upswell in the understanding of the, the, the communes, like it was always, in past, it was all about the... Nouveau? Uh, yeah, it was all about Beaujolais Nouveau, exactly, and it was all about, you know, the 1st of November and the, the race of Paris and whatever. But now I think stylistically people have come to understand, one, it's cheaper than Burgundy, they know it's Gamay, and they've come to appreciate the... The Beaujolais is an appellation devoted to Gamay just south of Burgundy. They know it's lower in tenons. They know it's lower in alcohol. And they know it's a bit more fleshy yet kind of um, approachable probably was the word, Luke Morris. Do you, and, do you think that's got much to do with either a the novelty of the Nouveau disappearing and giving some space for the actual Beaujolais to uh, spread its wings and maybe tip of the cap to Beechworth, Sonberg, and their great work for Gamay in Australia, and just people learning more, you know, that, that those two influences leading to a new breed of drinker. I or think it, you're right. Yes, I do. no, I, I think you you bang on. I think it's accessible not only here in Australia. I'd like um, to say price we've, point we've is moved. another thing. Price point, it's it's about a third of the cost of a good Burgundy, and the grapes for Beaujolais, you know, it, it, it's not all it's not always red, mind you, either. You know, Beaujolais produce Alagotte and Chardonnay, mind you. Although um, 
98% of the region's classification is devoted to Gamay. You can also have white Beaujolais. Um, but mo- for the most part, um, uh, for the most part, it, it's red. It's thin skin, great variety of Gamay. And yeah, whether it's, you know, Sorenberg, I could, I could reel off a dozen producers. Lion, Lions Will's another great example in Macedon here in Victoria. Uh, Mac Forbes, Sierra Reed down in Geelong. Where's um, Mac these... Forbes getting his stuff from? Is it, Mac, is he Forbes, planted? Mac Forbes has planted Gamay and he's also getting Gamay from, I'm going to say Strathbogie, but don't don't quote me on that, listeners. Um, you can farm up yeah. Strathbogie. I won't told it against you. It's a weird GI. No. It looks <laughs> odd on the bottle. Nobody, yeah. It's a double double take when you see it. It's okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, but like Beaujolais, it's light-bodied. It's got high acidity, low tenons, but it's just so high quality. The, the other thing is, um, you know, David Eldridge down at Eldridge Estate does Gamay on its oh, own, but he also, yeah, that's he also does um, – that is a crack. I mean, we're getting up there now at $45 a bottle, but he also does a Pasta Grands, which is the appellation in between Burgundy and Beaujolais where they blend, they produce and blend Pinot and Gamay at various rates, various um, cepages, various blends is the term I'm looking for, and it comes out all currenty and cranberry and utterly delicious with char-grilled chicken and mushrooms and just char-grilled pork and mm, just tasty. Oh, it, yeah, Pasta oh, grounds. Oh, we could talk more, but we're running out of time. So let's jump through because I was really yeah. – I learned a lot about the Merceau. Now, that was by Laurent Ponce, Ponsot. Laurent, Laurent Ponceau, absolutely. Yeah, the, yeah. So Domain Laurent Ponceau. The thing that hit me about that, apart from the fact that, A, I was way off in, in picking it as a New World wine because I thought it was just so crisp and it had some, so much clarity of character in, in my old brain of tasting wine. Whenever I saw something that had a little little bit of messiness to it, I thought, oh, that's old world. But that Merceau was just beautiful length, beautiful freshness, beautiful everything to it. But also, oh, yeah. the bottle had this shock absorb, no um, temperature control warning sticker on the side of it. <laughs> And and a really funky label, I think that I d- described as looking like it was designed by Delorean. It, <laughs> it was it was very interesting to see that. Have you seen that sort of that? So the, the shock, shock absorb heat heat notice on the side of the bottles is to let anyone buying it know whether or not that bottle has been through a rough transport life. That's that's game changing. Yeah. That's a that, as as someone pointed out. Gee, you'd be worried if you were shipping, you know, a pallet of that over from Merceau um, <laughs> because it's a hundred something plus a bottle. Yeah. And if it turns up with a few crates, where they're all damaged. Yeah. Oh. So Laurent Ponceau is one of Burgundy's most internationally renowned winemakers, and we won't bore the listeners with with the history too much. But if anyone's seen. Uh, sour grapes, the the Rudy Kerwine um, story, or even some go into it in a couple of their documentaries. And we mentioned the Rudy Kerwine story, sour grapes, on this podcast, this very podcast, Luke, a few few episodes ago, actually. If you've ever watched that, Ron Ponso um, was a, was heavily affected by that. But even predating Rudy Kerwine's um, e- extravagant plan to defraud the wine community. 
Laurent was putting the temperature, they're called temperature points or temperature spots on his wines, on his old label um, for that very point. So you could tell the range and he was using different technologies. In those cases, it was a, it was a paper label and it had a spot and if the spot arrived and it was a different colour, you knew that it had been affected by temperature. In this case, the, the labels are actually, they're not carbon fibre, but they're a particular material that's not um, paper that has a heat, a temperature sensor in it. Yeah. Um, For those that watch... Uh... Uh, what's it called? Mythbusters. Mythbusters, absolutely. The little, the little shock stickers that they all wore. Yes, absolutely. That's it. Um, but the 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 the, the flavours in that Merso were just, you know, pretty. His family domain is in Moray Saint Denis, so it's right in the heart uh, of the Cote Nui there, and he produces everything, mainly um, mainly whites, but as well as some reds. In Burgundy, and this this particular was a wasn't a Merso AC, but it was effectively um, it, it was a village wine, wasn't it, Luke? It was a Merso Cuvée du Penedora. I'm not good with this stuff. Cuvée du Penedora, yeah. So it yeah. was a, a clo it was a walled walled vineyard within uh, Merso, and yeah, just just delicious. So if you think of that kind of you know exceptional balance between citrus and matchstick and you know, grapefruit and then honey oh, yeah. and oh, there was so much going on. It was acidity, richness and acidity and balance and oh, gosh, it, it was, was one moment. of those moments where you taste a wine and you know it's Chardonnay basically. You're drinking Chardonnay, that's what you're drinking, yep. and you spend twenty dollars on a Chardonnay and you think that's pretty good, and then you see a, a fifty dollar Chardonnay and you think, oh, it better be worth it, and it's you know it's a bit better, and then you see those hundred dollar Chardonnays and oh, how can that be worth a hundred dollars? And then you taste something like that and you think, well, That's it's out. definitely better than everything else I've ever had. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Um, the last one, we're, we're sort of out of time, so we might skip the, the uh, uh, listener question today. But if there is a question yeah. in, in future, lukestalkwine at gmail.com. I want to get your opinion because I was my, my wine of the day, as much as we enjoyed the champagne and the Merceau and the Beaujolais and everything else, the Morris O'Shea 2000 Vintage Shiraz. What a cracker. What a wine. A piece of um, Venice history, really, from yeah. McWilliams, most pleasant, McWilliams Mount Pleasant. Like, And for those who don't know, Maurice O'Shea was probably one of – well, no, not probably. He was one of Australia's first and most respected winemakers. He's often referred to the father of Australian winemaking. He predates Max Schubert. Uh, he was of French, um, f- French and Irish heritage, and so which is the Irish heritage came from the drinking, and the wine making heritage came from the French. Uh, <laughs> uh, and he, he was, you know, he was North Sydney, but he, he grew up in Newcastle and the Hunter, and settled and crafted the vineyards of Mount Pleasant and the Hunter, and kind of was. Um, he really was the, the the godfather. He was blessed. He was godfather of Australian winemaking. He was blessed with this remarkable palate. He was a master blender, and uh, and this particular wine is his namesake, which Mount Pleasant and McWilliams have continued to make from the vineyards that he planted. And it was beautifully golden, um, not golden brown. It was brownish. That that brownish bricky tinge on the side still had a lot of 
fruit, nice ripe berry fruits, but it wasn't like a, a heavy, rich wine. There was just fruit still within it, and then there was great. Uh, it had a lot of life, didn't it? it had a, had oh, a lot of life. It was two thousand. It was a great year, but it had so much life left in the wine, and that's what I look for in a wine that's aged. I want to look for the life in a wine, and then had it. Really did. It had life, but I think it was in a really great drinking window. It was the last bottle yep. that uh, Lordy bought it, last yep. bottle that Lordy had, and uh, it was very great, grateful to him to bring it along. But yeah, I tasted it and I immediately went, oh, that's aged Australian Shiraz. And the only things that I've tasted like it were all, you're going to hate this, Campbell. It was <laughs> that all the things from the Brossa were all, and, and that sort of aged Aussie Shiraz immediately, I thought, well, I've only tasted this kind of wine in, from one area of Australia before. And then for it to be a hunter wine, wow. Well, I actually picked it conversely. I was totally off the mark. It just smelt so familiar with me. Some of the first wines I ever put in my own cellar were the Wynn's Black Label um, Shiraz and Cabernet, mind you, from the Coonawarra. I actually picked it as Coonawarra Shiraz because it just felt like a big oh, yes. old familiar cedary spiced hug. Um, and it wasn't until the questions came out and, you know, people were le- leaning on the, the the style of Shiraz that I thought, oh, you know what, I- I'm in the wrong uh, district here. I'm in the wrong region. It actually is Hunter Shiraz. And it really, the possibilities of that opened up and it, and it was just, it was a delicious wine. I think the texture of the wine blew me away more than anything for what is a 20, what was a 21 year old wine in 2000 vintage, which was a cracking vintage in the Hunter and for the Maurice O'Shea wines, mind you. Scary to think that the year 2000 was is a 20 year old vintage now and the wines are just starting to drink. Uh, makes me feel old. But, <laughs> um. I, yeah, that was an absolute standout. So that, that I think, <laughs> I hope that was really interesting for people because I learned a lot that day. And um, if if anybody's got some of those wines hanging around, just invite us via uh, Luke's Talk Wine at Gmail dot com. We'll come along and um, help you drink through any stash of Morris O'Shea two thousand vintage Shirazes you've got going. We'll be there. Um, but before we get those offers flooding in. What are you drinking this week, my friend, pal? Well, it's a very, very good question, actually, because we, we left that lunch and I, I mentioned the wines. You gave the me wines a pint of Guinness and I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, left, we left that lunch and we, we had a few tasty uh, cleansing, cleansing ales. No, but I was left just wanting to delve back into Shiraz, actually, and Coonawarra Shiraz and... You know, I was thinking of the great Australian Shiraz wines, actually. So I've just been drinking a straight Shiraz none from none other, current vintage from McLaren Vale, actually, a Ministry of Clouds Shiraz, you know, about $30 from your local yep. independent wine retailer made by Julian um, and, and Benice in McLaren Vale that comes off Blue at Springs Fruit, but just fleshy, juicy, grippy, just yeah, utterly delicious, Luke, and... and you know, and I think it's it's important to realise where you come from. We, we work in the wine industry. We drink wines from all over, and you should too, listeners, drink diversely. We've always said that on the podcast. Yep. But I, I just I just wanted to revisit my roots and pluck a Shiraz off the shelf, and that's what I did, Luke. So, yeah, just Ministry of Clouds Shiraz from McLaren Vale. It's been me this week. Smart man. Well, hmm. enjoy it. Keep going. Yeah. I'll catch you next week. Uh, thanks for your time. 
Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I've been Luke Campbell, and you can find me on the gram at vinified underscore wine underscore services. In the words of Tony Barber, keep smiling and bye for now. Ciao, ciao. Vinified are the wine cellars specialists. We're Australia's only personal sommelier service. Our sommeliers work with you to build your cellar. Our aim is to bring you the wines from the freshest new producers, all based on your tastes. We can come to you, source your wines, present tastings. Think of Vinified as your wine concierge. We can do retail, we can do tastings, we can host your dinner parties, or we can procure you that rare wine. Vinified is proud to be associated with Luke's Talk Wine. www.vinified.com.au